Welcome back to the Napoleon Bonaparte podcast number 38. Welcome back again, my esteemed co-host, the Honourable J. David Markham. How are you today, sir? I'm very fine, thank you, uh, Cameron. Uh, Doing well. The sun is shining. It didn't rain all day today like it often does this time of year. I got a little bit of a walk in and so life is good. Well, life may be good for you, but not for our friend Napoleon. (laughs) Do you like how I just segued right in there? I just slid that right in. Are you impressed, sir? Very (laughs) cleverly done, yes. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. So where we last left Napoleon, he was still holed up at the Elysee Palace in Paris. And uh, there was a lot of deliberation going on by Joseph Fouché around who was going to run France after Napoleon's abdication in favor of his son, Napoleon II. What are you going to do to Napoleon today, David? Well, yes, uh, just to sort of recap, uh, after Waterloo, Napoleon has uh, retired to uh, uh, Paris. Uh, The the straggling army is, is slowly catching up to him. He has his staff put together. But as we discussed last time, uh, you know, there, there, were, uh, there were issues with uh, Fouché, which we're going to talk about uh, some more today, uh, with the, the, uh, the, the chambers uh, and uh, with the allies, the chambers, legislative chambers, the two houses of Congress, in essence. Uh, and, of course, with the allies, especially the Prussians, uh, uh, coming down and and it becomes clear that there's there's increasing problems for Napoleon, and and we're going to get to that momentarily. But in the background of all of this, and we're going to skip over most of this. You're you're just going to have to read my next book to get all this, because as, as, as much as we love doing this podcast, we don't want to spend the next year just at this period in in in, in Paris, which we could because there's so much uh, neat stuff going on now. Neat in the in the sense of being fascinating, it certainly wasn't neat from the standpoint of being useful to to Napoleon or, or ultimately to the people of France. Uh, but Fouché and Talleyrand, uh, along with perhaps Wellington, are in, in essence conspiring, and it takes them a while to sort of get to this. But they basically are conspiring to bring uh, Louis the Eighteenth uh, back to the throne. And 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 there's a few quotes that I'd like to sort of used to entice our readers to to either just find some other source to read on this or obviously better yet buy my book when it comes out uh napoleon's uh, the road to, the road to saint helena napoleon after waterloo uh at one point fouché and 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 talleyrand are are with uh, the incoming louis the 18th and 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 chateaubriand is there among among others and on the 6th of July, again, this is ahead of where we are in the story, uh, Talleyrand presents Fouché to, to the king. And Chateaubriand, who's very conservative, nevertheless writes, it was vice leaning on the arm of crime. The trust, which I love, that's one of the greatest little, little phrases in, in all of history. Vice leaning on the arm of crime. The trusty regicide on his knees put his hands, which had pushed Louis the Sixteenth head under the knife, into the hands of the brother of the martyred king. The apostate bishop was guarantor of the oath. Uh, so, so this is this is the kind of uh, wonderful stuff again, and, and quotes that's that's going on. And Chateaubriand says it says it very well. Uh, meanwhile, Wellington is making it clear all along 
that uh, that that uh, Napoleon is is not to be allowed to escape, and we'll we'll get to that in in a little bit uh, uh, later. But I wanted to to give you two two quotes of of some interest. Uh, the 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 first quote is by uh, a Count uh, Molay, if if I recall, no, uh, a Count uh, Savigny uh, talks about you know Fouché uh, eventually disbanding the provisional government and leading the way for for Louis to to return. He says uh, this was Fouché's final lie and final treason. Because no more now than in 1814 did the Allies intend to impose on France a regime contrary to the wishes of the nation. Thus, the restoration was besmirched with an initial stain that it was never able to wash away. Our fine Duke of Otranto, that's Fouché, had thus worthily crowned his work by succeeding in one single act in betraying the cause of the revolution out of which he had come the cause of the empire, which had brought him his highest honors, and the cause of the monarchy, where he hoped to find a dominant place for himself. So that's doing pretty good when, when in, in one operation you can do all of these things. Uh, and and uh, Fouché, of course, is not alone in being condemned by, by not only historians since then, but also his peers. Count Molay uh, has a wonderful description of a Talleyrand's questionable career that I thought I would start out. Of all the ex-ministers, Monsieur de Talleyrand was the only one who joined the opposition. He has a weakness for ministerial power and will never find himself shut out without experience of violent longing to be in again. What a strange destiny is his, passing from treachery to treachery, from perjury to perjury, he finds himself once more under the banner of loyalty. After betraying the Bourbon, the nobility, and the church for the revolution, Mademoiselle Grand, sold the directory to Bonaparte and Bonaparte to the Bourbon, for whom he found a crown for the second time. And instead of thanking God, or the devil, in whom he believes much more than in God, for so many miracles, instead of enjoying with dignity retirement and his immense wealth, Instead of occupying his leisure and old age and mentally renewing the past, he became the center of every intrigue and offered himself successfully to all parties. <laughs> Terrific quotes. And I have to ask you, you know, outside of Napoleonic historians like yourself, how do you think Talleyrand is remembered, generally speaking? Well, that's hard to say because, of course, the people I talk with tend to be Napoleonic historians or at least historians of that epoch. There are generally two schools of thought about uh, Talleyrand. Uh, one is that he was a scoundrel, a rogue who sold out Napoleon uh, and uh, and should have been, you know, hung from the from the nearest yardarm. The other is that he is the ultimate survivor. And, and that whatever else can be said of him, as things changed, he was able to, as we might say, roll with the punches. Uh, and then sort of as an addendum to, to that second uh, approach, a number of people think that Talleyrand was loyal 
to France. That, yes, he may not have been very loyal to Napoleon, but when he left Napoleon, uh, he left Napoleon because uh, he felt it was in the best interest of France. I've got one or two very good friends who, who believe that uh, very sincerely. Uh, my retort is that Talleyrand was loyal to Talleyrand and, and really to no one else, that he did what he thought was best for Talleyrand, which meant to be supportive of the emperor sometimes and to conspire against the emperor other times. Uh, as, as, as our listeners have, I'm sure, by now figured out over the last two years, I'm not a big fan of Talleyrand, even though I respect his, his obvious abilities. And he certainly was a survivor. I completely agree with that. I think he was also a traitor. Uh, and as bad as he was, Fouché was generally worse. Can I read you um, uh, one description of Talleyrand? Oh, please. Um, I, I saw this book in a local bookstore the other day. It's fairly recent. I think it's a 2006 public publication called Napoleon's Master, A Life of Prince Talleyrand by David Lauday. You yep, know, I've got that on my shelf too. I haven't read this one. I read the um, Duff Cooper one, which was sort of the classic on Talleyrand, I think. But this is um, looking at Amazon and the uh, editorial review from Publishers Weekly for David Lauday's book <laughs> says, Charles Maurice de Talleyrand Perigord was a diplomat for all regimes. He had major French governmental posts, including brief stints as prime minister for nearly four decades. During the post-terror phase of the French Revolution, and then under Napoleon and the Bourbon King Louis XVIII, as portrayed by Lauday, a former correspondent for The Economist, Talleyrand was a womanizer. He and Governor Morris, then the American ambassador to Paris, competed for the same mistress, and a money grubber with a certain aristocratic hauteur. Yet, Talleyrand was gifted at diplomacy. He was patient, an exceptional listener, and most important, a conciliator. Having had an exceptionally close relationship with Napoleon, he came to staunchly oppose the emperor's insatiable ambition and even committed near treason in his complicity with Austria and Russia against Napoleon. Lauday devotes appropriate space to Talleyrand's finest moment, the 1815 Congress of Vienna, where his skills steered the assembled diplomats to allowing France to remain an integral part of the concert of Europe. Um, it, it kind of... Uh almost sounds like they're making him up to be a, a good guy, apart from being a womanizer or a money grubber. Napoleon well, now, what in the world out, is wrong with being a womanizer and a money grubber, <laughs> I ask you? Napoleon comes out as the bad guy in that, you know. It's almost like Talleyrand was defending France and all of Europe against Napoleon's insatiable ambition. Well, sure. I mean, th this guy, I, I think, is British. You, you get a lot of this very you know, anti-Napoleonic stuff and, and, and Talleyrand and others ride to the rescue of France. Now, to, to give Talleyrand his due, Talleyrand was representing France at the Congress of Vienna, and there was probably some question as to how France would be received. And uh, Talleyrand represented France well in the sense that, uh, as, as that quote shows, uh, France uh, was sort of let off the hook because what what they said was, okay, uh, our real problem was not France, it was Napoleon, uh, the, the usurper, and so we're going to kind of pretend that Napoleon and France were different, and therefore uh, France will be a party to the discussions of the future of Europe. And, and I don't suppose that was necessarily guaranteed, and so in that sense, yes, he he was uh, representing 
uh, France. But uh, uh, this, of course, was was after uh, Napoleon's abdication. So Napoleon really wasn't, you know, a big a big issue in in, in that sense. Uh, uh, he was supposedly safely in exile on on the island of Elba, and it's not at all clear that that uh, Talleyrand had to to turn so so much against uh, uh, Napoleon. Nevertheless, I mean, I'll I'll give him his due uh, for, in, to to some extent for some part of the the Conference of Vienna. Uh, things were fine. It, it also has to be said uh, that when Napoleon came back, it was, uh, for the 100 days, it was Talleyrand, to a large extent, who was pressuring the Allies not to treat with him, not to, to talk with him, not even to open letters. Uh, and, and I have a hard time finding this to be in the best interest of France. Uh, had, for example, uh, the Emperor of Austria and the Emperor of Russia two former friends and, of course, the, the father-in-law, in the case of the Austrian Emperor Francis, uh, been willing to sort of sit it out and say, okay, well, Napoleon has sued for peace. He's written me this letter, which I've read. And, uh, you know, maybe we'll just kind of wait and see what happens. If, if the Allies had split that way, I'm not so sure there ever would have been a Waterloo. Uh, I'm not so sure that Napoleon wouldn't have been able to uh, under very strict uh, controls, in the sense that okay, you you move in, you move any anything more than a battalion within ten miles of the border, and we're going to get very suspicious uh, of your intentions. Uh, but but uh, uh, you know, it, it seems to me there was at least some possibility uh, that that might have happened, and, and it doesn't mean that it would have, uh, regardless of Talleyrand. But Talleyrand worked very hard to make sure that it wouldn't. And, and that's one of my, my biggest grievances against Talleyrand. And that's my retort to those who say he acted in the interest of France. I think it would have been just as much in the interest of France uh, for him to, to really work hard to say, listen, let's at least hear the man out. Let's, he's, he's come back. Uh, folks, if you read the treaty carefully, he didn't escape. He had the right to come back. Uh, and let's let's see what he says. Let's see if he's serious. It can't hurt us to exchange a few uh, letters with him. Almost said emails with him. Uh, exchange <laughs> a few a few letters with him, and and let's see what his intentions are. If he stands down his army, other than for you know the, the people at, at the fortresses on the border, which which are normally to be staffed, uh, and and is clearly turning inward to work on domestic issues and not trying to take, you know, so much as a, an acre of Belgium or, or whatever else, uh, then for now, maybe we should let it go. Now, you know, I'm repeating what I, I'm sure I must have said, you know, back, you know, all those many months ago when we dealt with 100 days, uh, but I, I firmly believe it. And Talleyrand is largely responsible for uh, the Allied refusal to at least open some lines of communication uh, with Napoleon. So, so I'm not a real fan of, of, of Talleyrand. Uh, although, again, as with Fouché, I certainly respect their abilities. I certainly respect some of the good things that they did for Napoleon. There were times that Talleyrand was indispensable as foreign secretary. There were times that Fouché was indispensable as head of the police. 
but there were also times when they were very, very dangerous to Napoleon and to France. Hey, I just found a great map at the back of a book called Napoleon's Road to Glory. You ever heard of this? I've, 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 I've heard it's not very good. It's written by some crackpot. Apparently, he, he's a big fan of womanizers and money growers. <laughs> yeah, some crackpot named Markham who made that comment only because his wife isn't within hearing distance. <laughs> <laughs> and, and she doesn't listen to the show, of course, but I'm hoping... Well, that... unfortunately, as a matter of fact, hi, Barbara, she does listen to the show. I put these things on, <laughs> on uh, uh, DVD or CDs, and she listens to them in, in the car. So she will listen to this and, and no doubt get a good chuckle. I highly um, uh, commend the uh, map at the back of uh, Napoleon's Road to Glory. You've, you've done a great job there, whoever prepared it for you, well, showing all of uh, the you know, campaign routes uh, of Napoleon's career. It's all in one map. That's terrific. That is an outstanding map, and I can say that because I did not design that map. The publisher, uh, Brassies, was, was able to put that map together. I think I sent a few samples of, of, of maps that showed, you know, one thing or another, and, and they put it all together. And, and, and I agree, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's well done. And, and yet another of the many reasons to buy Napoleon's Road <laughs> Glory. So uh, at the end of the last episode, <laughs> we, um, we had Napoleon uh, abdicating for the second time on the 22nd of June, 1815, uh, in favor of his son, Napoleon II, I think that's where we got up to. And I, I, I think Fouché had been appointed head of the provisional government, but I'm not quite yeah, sure. I believe I, I believe I told the story, you know, uh, with uh, uh, Carnot and Fouché and how Fouché uh, outfoxed everybody and got himself to be made head of the provisional government. Now, he's still, uh, you know, the head of a committee of five, and, and, and some of our listeners might say, well, you know, what's so what? So he was the head of the government that he could still be overruled. Uh, but I remind you, of course, that in theory, Napoleon was merely first counsel uh, out of out of the three councils. And we all know how much power the other councils were able to exert uh, over him once once that occurred. So so Fouché is to a very substantial uh, degree uh, running the show right now. He had been running it before, although you know, by pulling strings, although a lot of folks didn't realize their strings were being pulled. Uh, but, but clearly he's, he's now in charge. And this, this, is a, this is a really bad time for Napoleon on, on, on a lot of different levels. Uh, first of all, as we've already seen, uh, and we'll see, uh, you know, for the next several episodes, there's a great deal of indecision on Napoleon's part. Uh, I've given papers... <clears throat> on uh, Napoleon's uh, in indecision in Russia, uh, delays and in indecision in Russia in 1812 that, that really led to his downfall there. And, and I think we talked about some of those on the show. Uh, there were also some delays and in indecision even in the campaign in the Holy Land in 1798 that, that didn't do him any favors. As, as much of a man of action as Napoleon always had been, there were some occasions where he, he didn't really seem, uh, in, the, in the words of, of, of one of the books on this period, uh, you know, which didn't seem to understand which way to turn, uh, what to do, where to go, and, and, and how quickly to do it. Uh, at any rate, so, so he's sitting in the Elysee Palace, uh, 
uh, and he's getting a lot of advice uh, from from Hortense, his stepdaughter, Madame Mare, his his his, his mother. Uh, it was very clear, though, that the longer Napoleon stayed in Paris, the less control he would have over his fate. That you know, but between the the government now in the hands of someone who, to say the least, was not loyal to to the emperor, and the allies getting closer and closer, led in the vanguard, of course, by the Prussians led by Field Marshal uh, Blucher, who would have Napoleon shot on sight if, if he had anything to say about it. Uh, so there was a lot of discussion about what to do. Uh, one of the possibilities was, of course, going to, to England. The royal family uh, had been to England. Other people have gone to England and sought political exile. That was a possibility. Hortense was among others, was not very favorable toward that, but she, she did seem to think that America would be a good idea, the United States. Uh, but but he had to go quickly. I mean, time was running out. Other suggestions included that maybe he could go to Austria. Vienna is a, is a beautiful city today, and no doubt was even more beautiful uh, then when it was a little less populated and the streets were perhaps a little wider. Uh, and, and his father-in-law, the Emperor Francis, uh, might very well be willing to allow him to retire to a, a wing of Schönbrunn or, or some other appropriate uh, station of grandeur where, of course, they could keep good good eye on him. He'd have his, 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 his daughter, or, you know, his daughter, who was, who was Napoleon's wife, there with, with, with their kid. Uh, that might not be a, a bad idea, frankly. Uh, even Tsar Alexander was considered as someone who, after all, had been very friendly with Napoleon. Uh, Moscow was extraordinarily cold in the winter, but, but it's, it's a city with, with many delights, and, and Napoleon could be put up there. And, and Moscow, unlike Vienna, and unlike England for that matter, is so isolated from, from the rest of, of, of Europe, certainly from Western Europe, uh, that you know, people might feel comfortable that Napoleon's out of the way, and he can sit there and play cards with his buddy the Czar if he wants to, whatever. Uh, it strikes Napoleon. Me, so it strikes me as, as slightly strange that he would expect to find any sort of amnesty in the arms of the people who had hated him for the last twenty years, feared him, been uh, beaten by him at every turn until recently. Is this uh, kind of a godfather, keep your friends close but keep your enemies closer thing? They, they, it's better for them to have him nearby where they can keep a watch over him? Or did he just believe that they had a, a generosity of spirit towards a uh, fellow brother monarch in a time of defeat? Well, first of all, we don't know that this would have worked. Uh, we don't know that, that either uh, Emperor Alexander or Emperor Francis would be willing to take Napoleon. It was it was only being discussed as a possibility, uh, and an argument could be made. Well, again, there's a familial relationship with the with Francis in Austria, uh, and you know blood is thicker than water. And after all, the Corsicans were great believers in the idea that blood is thicker than water. That that family ties are are, are more important than political differences. So, but it was a political mass. It was a political yeah. marriage. <laughs> That only made at a time of Francis's uh, defeat in Napoleon's hands. It's uh, well, hardly like there was any love lost between them, you would imagine. 
No, well, yes and no. I mean, you've got to remember that in both the case of Austria and Russia, there were fairly long periods of time when they were allied. Now, were, was there a lot of love lost? Uh, maybe, maybe not. Uh, Tsar Alexander actually and and Napoleon apparently got along quite well personally. So there was that personal possibility. Uh, I don't know really how well Francis and Napoleon got along. They certainly talked together. Francis promised never to, to make war on Napoleon again, and a number of years later did just that. Uh, but again, uh, Cameron, the, the point is not that it would or would not have been possible. I don't really know, although I tend to think that it maybe it would have, if, if broached in the right terms, especially I think in the, in, in the case of Austria, that yeah, sure, they got married, uh, you know, big, big, in large part they were allies at the time because Napoleon had won, but nevertheless, there still was that familiar relationship. There still was, if nothing else, the love of the father for the daughter and the and, and grandson and the idea of having a family united and keeping Napoleon, you know, on a, on a short leash uh, in, in Vienna. A lot of folks will, will, will write us, I'm sure, and say there's not a prayer in the world that that would have worked. And, and they may very well be correct. My point is only that this is some of the stuff that was being discussed. Napoleon, by the way, rejected Russia and Austria. And I, you know, I've, I've read quotes that I, I don't have handy here, but you know, he, he said to some extent some of the same things that you're saying. Frankly, I don't think he was interested in a long Russian winter. Uh, Vienna might have been a little better, but I think he would have worried about political intrigue there. However, Napoleon had always been interested in two possibilities. One was the United States of America, and the other was uh, England. And, and so those were the two that were sort of going on. Meanwhile, of course, time was marching on and things were getting grim. Napoleon's presence at the Elysee Palace was becoming a very difficult situation. Uh, around the time of the abdication, uh, the, the courtyards and the streets around it were full of people crying, vive l'empereur, you know, he's crying out day and night. Uh, Napoleon in Paris provided a, what I, what I would call a dangerous counterweight to the power of Fouché and the provisional government and even to the, to the approaching king, Louis XVIII. Uh, there's a lot of soldiers around. Davout uh, has a, a, a formidable uh, force that he commands, and he is a formidable commander. Uh, Napoleon, were he to ride to the head of the army, it was Wellington who once uh, said that Napoleon's presence was worth 40,000 men. So, you know, with, with all the troops that are available and with Napoleon potentially available, uh, the Allies are not at all certain that, uh, uh, that Napoleon is totally out of the picture as long as he is that close to the center of government uh, in Paris. As uh, Fleury de Chambellon, uh, one of Napoleon's secretaries, uh, put it, the Duke of Entranto, however, and the deputies who had concurred with him in pulling down Napoleon from his throne did not look on his residence at the Elysee without alarm. They dreaded, lest emboldened by the daring counsels of Prince Lucien, that's Napoleon's brother, 
by the attachment of the army retained for him, by the acclamations of the federates and the citizens of all classes who assembled daily under the walls of his palace, he should attempt to renew a second 18th Brumaire. They demanded of the chamber, the legislature, therefore, uh, that the ex-emperor should be desired in the name of the country to be removed from the capital. So the day after uh, his abdication, the 22nd of June, the provisional government basically uh, decides that it's time for uh, Napoleon uh, to go. And, 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 and they make that very clear. They wanted him out of town. However, Napoleon is not that anxious to leave. You know, he, uh, he's very, very concerned about, you know, what will happen if he leaves the relative safety of Paris, where, where he is very, very uh, popular. Uh, and, 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 and the provisional government understands this, and, you know, they send, for example, Davout to go visit uh, I think it was the 24th of June, uh, and, and, and tries to, to convince uh, Napoleon that he, that he needs to go. Napoleon was furious with Davout and said, listen, you idiot, I could have, I could have retained power. I could have put myself at the head of all the soldiers that you now are, are in control of. I didn't do that, though, because I did not want to start a civil war between the, the people who support me and the people who support Louis XVIII, the royalists. And the provisional government seems to be forgetting that. Besides that, he says, listen, I abdicated. What else do you guys want? And, of course, Davu, who's correct in this case, says, listen, you know, the, the problem is this. We're in negotiations with the Allies. For better or for worse, our fate is going to depend on how well those negotiations go. And yeah, you've abdicated, but listen, sire, you're still sitting here down the street from the provisional government in the center of the action, ready to, on a moment's notice, do something, at least in their eyes. Uh, if you really want to sort of make a statement that you're truly out, you need to leave. And the place to go would be your former home, you know, a number of miles outside of the main part of town, Malmaison. Uh, and, and so the idea of Napoleon moving to Malmaison is, is produced. And in time, Napoleon begins to realize that, that that's uh, probably a good idea. First, first of all, he, he's likely to be safer there. Uh, in Malmaison, he's more secluded. He could have a personal guard. He would have lots of warning of someone coming. Uh, and, and, and it would be more difficult for someone in, in Paris to take action against him. And, and they were particularly worried, obviously, uh, about uh, Fouché. And, uh, and so on the evening of the 22nd, Tommy abdicated. He requests, and this shows you he is planning ahead. He requests uh, a decorate, the, the Minister of Marine, to place two ships at anchor uh, near, near Rochefort, which is a lot further south, at his disposal for travel to the United, the United States. So he's now decided he's going to the U.S. He requests that these ships 
be put at his disposal. And the next day, the 23rd, he sends General Bertrand to apply to Fouché for passports to leave France to go to the United States. Napoleon understands things are, are difficult. The Allies are coming in. You can't trust the government. There's probably an assassin behind every lamppost. And just as importantly, in many ways, slowly but surely, the British are beginning to, to close off the French coast. There are patrols. Uh, even as early as the 3rd of June, uh, the British had sent Captain Maitland and the Bellatheron to go down toward the Ildex, which is an island uh, in the bay uh, of uh, Rochefort in, in, in southern France. So he's, he's really starting to get to be in the middle. On the one hand, the government wants him out of Paris and, in fact, out of the country. And the British are taking steps to keep him from leaving. Now, it, it's a, normally a, a, a monarch, a deposed monarch, is usually allowed to, you know, settle where they want to, go to England, go to, go to Vienna, wherever. But all things considered, this is not normally. They didn't allow him to go where he wanted to the first time he abdicated, even though they gave him Elba and, and, and you know, made him the emperor of Elba and so on. This wasn't something he had asked for. This is what they gave him. And now, having come back, uh, escaped in the view of some, come back quite legally in the view of those who actually read the treaty, uh, the, uh, the, the fact is they were likely to, to be even harsher on him. And, and he understood that. So he realized he had to get out. But he also realized that he needed to get out legitimately. He didn't want to have to, to, to become an illegal immigrant, as it were. He needed an order to get through the countryside, through the military postings. At least in theory, he needed to have passports, internal passports. More importantly, he needed to have passports that would allow him to leave the country. And... In theory, Fouché could do that. As the head of the provisional government, Fouché could issue the passports. He did, after all, issue passports to uh, Marshal Ney. But in reality, one could argue that maybe he needed passports from the British that would allow him to get past any British blockade. There's some question as to which, which he actually needed, uh, and that's going to play a very, very important role in, in what happens as, as we go along. So Napoleon prepares to, uh, to go to, to, to Malmaison. He uh, writes various uh, letters to, to various people and proclamations to the army. Uh, and, and he gets Bertrand to arrange uh, for a collection of books to be prepared. Uh, all sorts of things on his own uh, uh, history uh, and works on, on, on America and so on. I mean, he's, he's quite interested in learning more and more about America. Uh, he wants a complete set of the Monitor, the best encyclopedia, the best dictionaries. Uh, 
and and it's going to be sent to America. I mean, the whole thing is designed to be to go to America, and uh, so so uh, once that's done on the early afternoon of the twenty fifth of June, Napoleon leaves the Elysee Palace. He leaves very quietly. Uh, he rides in Marshal Bertrand's carriage. Uh, they go by the Champs Elysees while Napoleon's carriage goes the other direction down the Rue Faubourg Saint Honoré with Generals Gorgon and Montalon and Comte de Lacaze. Uh, all of us are ruse, you know, to throw any potential assassin or spy or whatever, uh, you know, out of kilter. Uh, once they get out of town, Napoleon switches uh, to his uh, uh, carriage. Count Montalon writes, you know, Napoleon was acting almost as though he were a fugitive. It's, it's really a very melancholy, very sad event. And in the next uh, number of days, uh, or really weeks, are going to be very sad and melancholy uh, as well. Uh, Marchand, in the meantime, stays behind to collect personal effects. He gets images of, you know, Napoleon's sons, some artworks, uh, his favorite silver washstand, which I've seen. It's a magnificent thing. Uh, and uh, he visits Marie Valeska, Napoleon's Polish mistress, and arranges for her to come visit the emperor the next day. Uh, his, his carriage, I, I write, is now groaning carriage, uh, leaves and makes its way to Malmaison. So he gets to Malmaison. He's greeted by his loyal stepdaughter, Hortense, who had encouraged him to, to go there, of course. And she took some risk. They, the Allies had left her alone. They had let her retain titles, and she lived at Malmaison, you know, her her her, her now deceased mother's uh, uh, home. And and by allowing Napoleon to come there, she is at least in some regards taking risks. Uh, on the other hand, she's helping the Allies out of a difficult situation by giving Napoleon a a, a way station, as it were, on his journey. Uh, out of the country or, or wherever he's going. Uh, she even sends her, her children off to, uh, to stay with a friend so that she can devote all of her attentions to, to Napoleon. And then there's, speaking of melancholy, there's the question of Josephine. This had been their love nest. This had been the symbol of Napoleon and Josephine's marriage. This had been something he had bought with, with, with his own money. Josephine had, uh, uh, you know, put in magnificent gardens, had the, one of the world's best collections of rare roses. Napoleon, with all respect to Marie-Louise, and for that matter, Marie Valesca, who, who, who he loved and, and treated very, very well in, in many ways and was very loyal to. But I, don't, I really don't think he ever really stopped loving Josephine. I, it, was a, it was a very special relationship. Of course, to, to lots of people in the army, Josephine was the good luck charm for Napoleon. And when, when they divorced... Uh, the, the empire was at its peak, and it went all downhill from there. And a lot of folks, rightfully or wrongfully, blamed that on uh, the, the divorce. Josephine 
or rather, excuse me, uh, Hortense had been asked by Napoleon not to put him up in Josephine's suite. That would have been too much to take. That would have been just too emotional. But, you know, nice try. It didn't, it didn't really work. Josephine's influence was everywhere you looked. Napoleon loved to go and walk in the garden with all the roses. Well, how the hell do you not think of Josephine when you're walking in a garden? Uh, you know, when 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 someone's associated so much with some beauty like a like a rose garden, you you cannot avoid thinking of her uh, whenever you, uh, you 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 are in that rose garden. It's 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 like my own yard and and and, and the ravine that we have in our property. You know where where my wife spends so much time. If you know, I can't go out there not a mow the lawn without without thinking about all the work that she has put you know how much of herself she is she has put into to this uh to this yard uh he writes or he comments to hortense as she relates in her memoirs poor josephine i cannot become accustomed to this place without her it always seems as though i were going to catch sight of her behind the next hedge picking the flowers she loves so dearly poor josephine it is true she would be very sad if she could see the way things are going at present. There was only one subject we ever disagreed about, her debts. How I used to scold her about them. She was certainly the most charming person I have ever known. She was a true woman with all the qualities that word conveys. Quick, lively, and so good-hearted. Have another portrait of her made for me. I want it as a medallion. So here he is. His world is closing in on him. You know, it's going to hell in a handbasket, and he's asking for someone, for his wife, uh, for, for his stepdaughter Hortense, to make uh, another image, another miniature portrait of of her uh, for a medallion. And of course, another issue was security. You know, there's only a relatively handful of of armed men hanging around. They're not particularly well organized. Of course, they will fight to the death. But you know, if 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 a if if if, if a company of goods or a battalion of of regular army soldiers comes to capture Napoleon, uh, you know, his safety is 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 questionable. But then, late in the day on the twenty fifth, General Nicholas Becker arrives and asks to see Napoleon. Now, this is a a huge development. Earlier in the day, the provisional government had given the following letter to the good general. Please be advised the government commission, that's the temporary government, has named you to command the guard of the Emperor Napoleon at Malmaison. The honor of France requires that his safety and the respect owed him be assured. The interest of the nation demands that malicious people be prevented from using his name to foment trouble. General, your acknowledged character is the government's and France's guarantee that you shall, so, shall fulfill both tasks. You are invited to proceed immediately to Malmaison. Take command of the guard and take all dispositions required to accomplish these goals. And the letter is signed uh, by Davout. Well, Becker's arrival is good news and bad news. The good news was that the provisional government had recognized the need to provide security. And it sent, frankly, a good general 
to take command of the Imperial Guard members who were protecting Napoleon. This gives Napoleon and his entourage, his stepdaughter, etc., some assurance anyway that the provisional government wasn't planning to harm Napoleon. Okay? They're sending an, an honorable general at the behest of Marshal Davout to, to provide protection. The bad news, of course, was that this action made it very, very clear that Napoleon was no longer master of his own destiny and was, in point of fact, a prisoner. No matter how polite Becker was, and by the way, he, he treated Napoleon exactly as though Napoleon were a reigning heir, with all possible respect and dignity. All that said, the basic fact that he was no longer master of his own destiny, you know, couldn't couldn't be denied. It was it was very clear that Becker's primary mission was to get Napoleon out as soon as possible, and to, to excuse me to escort him on his way out. Of course, Becker's presence also you know is <laughs> pretty clear to Becker was 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 going to report to Fouché, and uh, Fouché would be kept advised of everything that was going on. Uh, Becker, by the way, had, had actually worked, uh, risen, risen, risen to a high rank under Napoleon, uh, had <clears throat> made uh, some criticisms of Napoleon's decisions, which resulted in him being put on half pay which is usually a, a, a bad indication for one's career. And indeed, he later retired. But after Waterloo, Napoleon reinstated him to serve in the defense of Paris. So Napoleon had brought Becker out of retirement just weeks earlier uh, in order to, to uh, uh, days earlier, really, in order to, to uh, help uh, defend uh, Paris against the, the Allies. Uh, Becker, like any general, that's probably the last assignment he wanted was to be sent to take care of Napoleon. But but Davout uh, insisted, and you know Davout wanted someone good to protect Napoleon from from any potential vengeance or whatever. Uh, Davout's loyalty to Napoleon can be questioned certainly, but but he had no reason at all to want Napoleon harmed, and so this was a good move uh, as far as. Uh, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, anyway, so Napoleon is at Malmaison. Now he's got some protection. He visits with all these uh, friends and associates. His brothers, Joseph, uh, Lu Lucien, and Jerome are coming in and being very supportive. He's got a whole list of military and political supporters. Uh, and, and of course, as I mentioned, uh, Countess Marie Valeska comes comes to uh, visit. She was the the Polish mistress, a a, a real love story, uh, and they kept in in touch and they got together in Vienna in 1809. And I mean, they really got together because they she became pregnant with with his uh, uh, son Alexandra uh, Florian Joseph Valeski. I remind our listeners that in Polish the the ending ka is feminine, ki is masculine, so she is Valeska, he is Valeski. Uh, I had the, the great honor of meeting uh, Florian uh, Valeski 
uh, in in uh, Poland uh, several years ago and traveling around in, in Poland with him and some others, and including, by the way, going to the tomb of Marie uh, Valeska and placing flowers on her tomb, which is, you know, attached to a, a, a little church. Uh, unfortunately, two weeks after we parted company, uh, Florian died. Uh, but it was so neat to to know and 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 become friends with. He he described me as his good friend, and and I was honored beyond imagination uh, to to do all this with a direct descendant of Napoleon, because all the other Napoleonic uh, uh, heirs out there uh, are through his brothers, because of course he had no direct heir through Josephine or Marie Louise. And so the, you know, Charles Napoleon and some of the others who, who were there are through Napoleon's brothers. But those who are descended from his, his uh, liaison with uh, Marie uh, Valeska are in fact direct descendants. And there's still, I think, a couple of Valeska brothers. Florian was one of three or four, uh, and they're out there. I've not met them. So there are still direct descendants of Napoleon Bonaparte uh, living uh, in the world uh, today. And, and I had for a, for a few wonderful days uh, an opportunity to, to get to know one fairly well. And he was, he was quite a, a marvelous fellow. So they meet on Wednesday the 28th. Uh, and uh, Alexander Valesky, their the young son, relates, the atmosphere was very sad. I can still see the emperor, every single feature of his face. He took me in his arms, and I remember a tear ran down his face. But I cannot recall what exactly he said to me on that occasion. At any rate, it must have been a very, very emotional uh, kind of thing. Uh, Napoleon, as you can well imagine, was becoming more and more depressed. Uh, part of it was the memory of Josephine, uh, but part of it is just the, you know, you know how the how the mighty have fallen. You know, all things considered, the roller coaster that Napoleon has just been on must have been absolutely astounding, and 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 the toll it would take. You know the the giddy glory of the return of the you know the route Napoleon and being carried uh, into to first in, into uh, uh, the the, uh, the 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 city of of Grenoble uh, by by the citizens and and then later into the Elysee Palace uh, by the citizens of Paris all without firing a shot the the crowning ceremony, everything seems to be falling into place. You, you pull a typical Napoleon military operation. You move in virtual secrecy north. You surprise the enemy by suddenly appearing on the scene at Charleroi. You defeat rather handily the Prussians at Lignier. You should have defeated them at at, at Catrebra, although at the very least they do withdraw, you believe fully that you are going to win and you almost win the Battle of Waterloo. 
So now you're at this huge high, and then you come crashing down. So you've you you you've crashed down in 1814. You've come back up. You crashed down again. This has to have taken an enormous psychological toll. He he, uh, Colincourt, uh, writes of Napoleon's emotions. All that could rouse the indignation of a lofty spirit, all that could lacerate a mortal wound, was studiously put into practice. And this treatment had wrought the wished-for effect, that of impairing his energy. His mental suffering was extreme. My removal to this place, said he, is an additional annoyance to me. Every object that presents itself to my eyes revives some distressing recollection. This Malmaison was the first considerable property that I became possessed of. The money with which I purchased it was my own earnings. It was long the abode of happiness, but she who was its chief ornament is no more. My misfortunes killed her. Ten years ago, I little foresaw that I should one day take refuge here to avoid my persecutors. And who are these persecutors? Men whom I have loaded with favors. Men whom I have raised from humble to exalted stations. I made myself what I was but they are only what I made them. What recollections I shall carry with me from France. So as you see, Cameron, it's, it's, it's quite a melancholy time. Yeah, that whole story of uh, seeing Maria Valesco and, her, and their son for the last time must uh, have been very emotional as well as everyone else he's leaving behind. I mean, this whole idea, uh, you know, the, the, the great tragedy of Napoleon going from, you know, the, the uh, man towering over Europe for so many years and having it all stripped away from him, not just the th crown and the throne, but uh, he's, you know, literally being torn away from uh, everyone he loves, his family, his children, his wife, his lover, um, Josephine's dead. Uh, yeah, it's it's a it's a very sad tale. We still haven't got him on the boat, though, David. <laughs> <laughs> oh, said, I, we're not gonna we're I not said, gonna get him on the boat today, Cameron. <laughs> I said to David before we started recording, let's get him on the boat. <laughs> we still haven't got him on the boat. So. Well, and I told Cameron we won't get him on the boat, but I do want to get him moving toward the boat anyway. <laughs> so. So let's let's move forward here, and and I apologize uh, uh, to some extent anyway. Although I'm I'm reminded every time I say something like, "Oh, we're we're too long winded," or "These these are going too long," or "We're taking too long to get there," we get a flurry of either postings on the on the site, or I get emails saying, "Oh, for heaven's sakes, take your time. Don't worry about it. We really don't want this thing to ever end." And I, I usually write back, be careful what you wish for. You may get it. It, it may never end, uh, but it will end. And it today, will end eventually. And I think we need to end for today where we got to. Uh, oh, so we can end now because, you know, we now have uh, Napoleon at Malmaison. He's waiting for the, the uh, passports. I was about to explain... Again, the issue with the passports, why I think maybe Napoleon should have said, screw the passports, passports. And then 
what I call the Fouché sidestep. And so we can start once again next show as we started this show with yet another reason to be rather skeptical about Joseph Fouché.